Welcome to the Image Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Mesman. In every episode, we're exploring the intersection of art and faith. We'll talk to poets and writers, filmmakers, musicians, and visual artists who grapple with the mystery at the heart of religious experience. Jeffrey Overstreet wasn't allowed to watch movies growing up, but his Christian parents did take him to the public library every Friday night. Intrigued by the ads he saw for movies in the daily paper, he started reading the reviews. He discovered film criticism before he discovered films themselves. His story is almost the mirror image of Jeff's. He grew up with lapsed Catholic parents who were suspicious of religion. For them, art was where you went to find the truth. But they both longed for deeper friendship. To cope with the loneliness of an isolated childhood, Jeff turned to writing creating stories of a community of friends. Rather than being led away from Christianity, he found the arts enhanced his faith. Today, he's an award-winning arts critic, memoirist, and novelist. Morgan was also lonely, and he found himself always looking for that something more within the artistic communities he participated in and created. In his 30s, he started going to Mass, and religious practice enhanced rather than limiting his experience as an artist. In addition to writing about art for the Image, The New Yorker, and Harper's, he's part of a group of urban Franciscans called the New Order of St. Francis, who serve the poor on the streets of Detroit. When you meet Jeffrey in his Doctor Strange t-shirt and jeans, and Morgan in his three-piece suits, they may seem like an unlikely pair of friends, but a shared vision brings them together. They're both longtime writers for Image's Good Letters, where we publish essays about the intersection of art, faith, and personal experience. We sat down at the Glen Workshop in Santa Fe to talk about the importance of artistic and spiritual friendships to our work and faith, how both church and friendship have served to break us down and put us back together again, and how our favorite films do that too, from Mike Lee's Another Year and the documentaries of French filmmaker Agnes Varda to The Muppet Movie. Well, I grew up in the 70s in Portland, Oregon, in a, in a very, I want to say closed, but, but small Christian community. We attended a Baptist church there that was more Southern Baptist in, in its ways than I understood at the time. But the general attitude uh, in the church regarding the arts was suspicion, and nobody went to movies. If you were seen coming out of a movie theater, there were people would talk about you. But, strangely, there was this wonderful contradiction that the more you read, the more widely you read, the better. So, we, I won't say we lived in poverty, but you know, we would go to Dairy Queen maybe once a year, and that was our restaurant trip for the year. Friday nights, we never went out to do anything that would cost money. Friday nights, the family adventure was to go to the public library. My mother gave me this plastic yellow tub, and I could bring home as many books as I could fit in that thing. And I, there's a picture of me at like four years old, sitting on our very 70s couch with this pile of books that I have dumped out of the yellow tub. And there's one of those books looks like Roger's Thesaurus or something. Uh, I don't know what it is wow. or why I picked it Checking at four. Out the dictionary. But I, she, my mother, wonderfully encouraged me to read everything. She was an elementary school teacher. Mm has been a preschool teacher for, for many, many years, wanted me to learn to write at a very early age, and so I started copying the storybooks I would bring home from the library, letter for letter, word for word, illustration, everything. 
and I just fell in love with the act of making books. So while I was not allowed to watch much of anything outside of Mr. Rogers or Sesame Street, I was writing, from the beginning, writing these really terrifying stories about monsters. I mean, my first book actually had no text. It was just drawings of this sea monster with these enormous jaws chasing this vulnerable little stick figure diver. And on each, every time you turn the page, the jaws would close a little more. <laughs> um, until finally the teeth are like right on him and he does what any diver would do. He draws his sword and kills the monster. <laughs> and that's how I resolved the tension of having seen in 1975 the poster for Jaws in the newspaper. Because movies were evil and there was a monster, you know, clo you know the, the image, closing yeah. in on this swimmer. And I had to resolve that tension because I was never going to be allowed to know what actually happened in that, that, that movie. So that's how I started. That was my entrance to creative writing. It was a way of coping with this sense that I was surrounded by danger, mm. represented by movies. And so I learned right away that the way you deal with danger is to squash whatever is in your path, <laughs> whatever yeah. is threatening you. I, you know, I grew up in the vocabulary of a very conservative Christian tradition, learning all the Bible stories and, and genuinely loving Jesus, but believing that a life lived faithfully to the gospel meant withdrawing from the world yeah. and being, you know, living a life of self-preservation. And so that sort of feels like the core of what, what I'm supposed to do now and you know, what, 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 what my life is now in the arts is trying to celebrate beauty and freedom in a way that will help save Christians. <laughs> That sounds really prescriptive and condescending, but it was a way of, it's still a way of saving myself yeah. or receive, actually receiving the salvation offered to me yeah. for the first time. I mean, of all the, the books on faith and art I've read and all the, the Glenn workshops I've attended and all the wise friends like Morgan that I have, the line that sticks with me most sort of at the center of all of it is, um, predictably, Madeline Langle's book, Walking on Water, that we do not draw people to Christ by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely they will long with all their hearts to know the source of it. Yeah. And that, I like, it's like I read that and it, it just, all of the false teachings crumbled. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not on a mission to change people when I write. I'm on a mission to be in love. At what point in your life did you start to experience movies and start to love film? Well, by virtue of being disallowed movies, but so being so intrigued by the posters for them in the newspaper every day, I started reading reviews. Mm -hmm. That's how I got close to movies. That's how I found out what really happened in there. The lack of spoilers became a constant torment because I needed to know how these stories ended. Right, right. <laughs> so those early stories also often resemble whatever movie was out at the time because I was trying to figure out what might happen there. Wow. But for some reason, my parents let me watch Siskel and Ebert oh. on TV. Yeah. And so I would listen. And, and this is where this is what was important about that. It wasn't just that that got me close to movies. It's that for the first time. I saw people disagreeing mm. respectfully every single episode. Of course, then we learned later that they really hated each other's guts. <laughs> but they put on a good show of but being friends. And civility, sure. And disagreeing. And I, I had you know, just been taught that, that disagreeing with somebody was anger and anger was bad. 
Yeah. Uh, so if you had a problem with somebody, you were just you just bottled it up and you were quiet. But mm-hmm. I was like, I like how they think through things out loud yeah. together, and sometimes maybe pers- persuade each other a little bit in their enthusiasm. So instead of diaries, I have drawers full of little magazines I started writing at like 11 where I reviewed everything that happened to me. Wow. I reviewed little little <laughs> little records I played on my Mickey Mouse record player. Wow. I reviewed I reviewed episodes of the A team yeah. uh, or Murder She Wrote or whatever we were watching. <laughs> I have like a five-page article that I wrote on an Amy Grant album. Wow. Um, that was the beginning of criticism. It was yeah. just I wanted to justify my interest in these things because I was told that I shouldn't be interested in them. Yeah. And so I wrote in self-defense. Yeah. And that, that was my entrance into criticism. And I'm t- sometimes I'm told, you need to not sound so defensive in your criticism. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's my seven-year-old self right. trying to find permission to live. Right. Fiction, though, was more important because I loved losing myself in story and not... I mean, I grew up kind of alone. I had a younger brother, but he had very different interests than, than I did. Mm-hmm. And we weren't really allowed to play with other kids after school because they were from more worldly families. Mm-hmm. So I f- longed for those friendships you see modeled in the Hundred Acre Wood yeah. or in the Henry Huggins and Ribsy stories. Um, I wanted a neighborhood full of friends, and so I had to make it. Yeah. And so the stories became my community. I'd like to hear more about your story, too. How did you, how did you come to an interest in art, and how do you reconcile that with your faith or not? My parents were both raised Catholic. Uh, my father went to Jesuit boarding school, which I think will beat the Catholicism out of a certain amount of people. And my mother uh, was raised in the Polish Catholic immigrant Chicago, mm-hmm. where I, I think for those people, Catholicism is, is essentially the national punishment. So they both fled, you know, boomer type 60, you know, fled mm-hmm. fast as possible from their religious affiliations. So I was really raised by lapsed Catholics and raised, I mean, our religion was essentially atheism. In retrospect, I realize I, you know, a lot of sort of latent Catholicism was there in the background, but really I was raised without religion, and I was raised with the idea that art is basically the, the replacement, or art is the real thing. Art is the cool thing. Mm-hmm. Art is the interesting thing. Art is the thing that gets you in relationship with true stuff, stuff that that's, shows you what life is really like, it, um, elevated ideas, profound things, all of that is art. My father uh, was a writer, is a writer. Mm-hmm. All my aunts and uncles on that side are writers, uh, filmmakers. Writing is a, is a huge thing in my family. My grandfather was a dentist who desperately wanted to be a poet, the poet-dentist <laughs> syndrome and, and, and consistently wrote sort of poetry throughout his hor- horrible life as a dentist that he hated. So for me, it was art. And, and contrary to Jeffrey, it was like, don't hang out with religious kids. They're weird. 
They are, by the way. <laughs> right. I mean, maybe everybody was right here, but yeah, the thing is hang out with arts kids and, and also do what you want. Of course, that story can't just end there because I have to find my rebellion. I have to find my way of correcting the things that weren't provided in that situation. I So, right, so eventually, you know, I start going to mass and there's a long story of how that happened, but let's just say I start going to mass. How old are you now? In my 30s. And at first, you know, my, my family's horrified. Like, oh my God, he's gone astray. What has happened to Morgan? He's going to church. <laughs> Can we <laughs> save him? Can we save him from this? Oh no. So it's almost, for me, the problem was, I know art is important. I know art is, is real. And, and also, you know, my wife and I started an art collective in New York City. Life as like, even trying to create a life around art, trying to create a community that is based on art. Though in some way, like the lacking always of that community for me was that like it needed something more to hold people together. Mm. And I didn't know what it was until I later now realize it's some sense of like spiritual something or other. I mean, to me, that's also a religious thing. Like to me, the, the liturgy, I love the liturgy. Like I love the liturgy of the mass. So all that stuff I discovered as for me, a corrective for what was lacking in the sort of free-for-all aesthetic realm where art does everything. Mm-hmm. I'm, now I need religion to like make art right. Yeah. Whereas you needed art to make. Yeah. It's kind of awesome. We should yeah. be friends. We should be friends. <laughs> wow, we thought of this. It's so interesting because I feel like my story is a combination of both of your stories. Growing up culturally Catholic was pretty much it. Mm-hmm. There wasn't much beyond that. It wasn't rigid in any way. It was very open. And then right when you hit adolescence at that most important formative period, my mother died and my dad joined a very rigid evangelical community where suddenly everything that came before it had to be not only forgotten my entire childhood, my entire religious upbringing, cultural upbringing, but exercised because it was evil. So then... Which one do I rebel against yeah. <laughs> was sort of my feeling as I, as I grew up. And I think maybe I'm still there. I'm realizing as I'm listening to both of you, like, I kind of, I kind of ping pong between the two. Like, which is the corrective for me as an art or as a religion? And I also really respond to what you say about loving the liturgy and needing the liturgy, even as I struggle now with any kind of traditional Catholicism feeling like a real craving for that for the I don't know what it is if it's just I I love ritual I love aesthetics and symbolism but there's something there that anchor is really necessary for me and also what you said about artistic community and I've been parts of artistic communities my my entire adult life I've worked with artist colonies and artist organizations and art schools Mm -hmm. and there is something missing for me in those communities when there isn't the spiritual element and that's what makes image so different to me and what makes this workshop and particularly the Glenn workshop feel so different yeah I mean finding image for me I think in that sense we all share this yeah. whatever the an original starting point is finding image is like holy shit at all I, yeah. oh sorry I probably can't but also the thing of like I don't have to do it all yeah I don't have to be the one who figures out the solution to all, not that we've solved everything in a, in a, in a big right. sense, but like this community 
already put it together. So, yes. yeah. you know, you can participate in that. Yeah. yeah. When I when I graduated from college in the mid-90s, I started an arts and faith journal because I wanted to continue Madeline Langle's walking on water kind of work. And Image started like right after that. And I remember looking at it going, oh man, that's heavy. That's heavy stuff. <laughs> I don't even know that I understand what I'm reading in this thing, but but there was this magnetism that they're already way ahead of me on this road, mm-hmm. but that's where I need to go. I need to catch up with them. So eventually, our first Glenn workshop was 2004. Um, I think my first time writing something for Image was a little bit before that, but it was just like, that's the language I want to speak. Mm-hmm. They they get it, It's but you know I'm a beginner in that language. So it was amazing once I learned enough of that language to participate to find out how many different directions we were coming from. To claim this space, yeah. and, and it was almost—it was almost sort of an affirmation that this is right, mm-hmm. that we are all so different, but this all makes sense to us. I'm noticing also that this—I mean, this is for you know the the listening audience mm-hmm. that, you know, that our, our our fashion senses represent. I think these extremes. <laughs> I am wearing a Doctor Strange Marvel T-shirt and jeans because you know I grew up in the in the the strict. Formal, <laughs> and, uh, and and Morgan. Well, you just got to meet Morgan sometime. He 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 wears a suit like nobody I know all yes. the time. By the way, well, there yeah. For me, this is just the physical sartorial version of what we're talking about. My father was a type of kind of uh, deeply committed to casual person. When I was a little kid, on the weekend, I'd, I'd get up and go into the kitchen, and he would be making pan cakes with a cooking smock but no pants so like his ass is hanging wow and, you know, like you, a hospital man. like a, yeah and you you know you go I would just go into that room and just think no no this cannot stand this this cannot stand and I think a three piece suit was my destiny and from that moment on it, it, it was necessary so yes it all fits together that reminds me that I want to take a picture of both of you, so... <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and do that now before I forget. I'm Jamie Smith, the editor-in-chief of Image Journal. And like you, I'm a fan of the Image Podcast, which is an audible feast. I hope you'll consider giving to our fall campaign so we can continue to set this table. Your gift, big or small, is crucial for our continued work. To give, visit imagejournal.org slash donate2019. Thanks for investing in art, faith, and mystery. It's interesting to talk about fashion, to talk about your sartorial choices as a statement of your um, religious background and what you're rebelling against. Yeah, I mean, sometimes when I feel like, what am I doing? I'm such a jackass, like wearing my little suits and <laughs> every day. Like, what, what, what little show am I putting on? But yeah, that like either aesthetics is just something you can get rid of. It's superficial. Right. It's a surface phenomenon that doesn't really mean anything. Or, or it really does mean something, in which case, like, it goes all the way down. Right. And then, I don't know, to me, even something like fashion is not meaningless. It's, it's, it's as important as anything else. That doesn't mean that, you know, I don't know, you judge someone on their fashion or something like that, but, or that or the, you have to, uh... It's a sense of integrity. If it, Integrity means everything 
is connected. You, because part of your life is very contradictory towards like a dapper fashion style and that I know. Are, are you a third order? I am a sort of third order. I'm, I am in what's called the new order of St. Francis. That's it. So tell us about that and what it's, that means and what you do. It's really hard to explain because I ended up, I, I have no great theological or practical or whatever break with the Roman Catholic Church. I was a baptized a Roman Catholic. I go to various churches. Mm-hmm. But I found myself at this kind of renegade church in Detroit just because of what they're doing in Detroit, in, you know, inner city Detroit, and serving a neighborhood in a very humble way of just like, we're here, we're not telling anyone who to be or how to be or trying to fix anything. We're here to listen and do whatever we can to to just be there. And that seemed so right and so necessary to to what a church is to me. Mm-hmm. That I'm, our bishop, though, has uh, essentially created a kind of splinter Catholic thing called the Ecumenical Catholic Church. And I joined his little San Franciscan order, which is this newer uh, thing. So I'm a kind of lay Franciscan, but there are like five of us. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I wear, I do wear at mass, you know, robes and like wander around the neighborhood in my little brown robes. And I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> I feel like a total fraud. But at the same time, I don't know, it just feels deeply meaningful to be doing that. And I can't even really explain how profound that experience experience is of kind of trying to be this urban Franciscan. You have written about it. I have written about it for good letters, actually, uh, um, a couple of times. There's a magnetism to the the reaching for, again, integrity and an incarnational life that I believe this and I need to manifest this, not to show off, but to, to, to become fully human, right? And so, I mean, I hear about this and it, I mean, this, this is telling me about my own increasing attraction to high church, mm-hmm. um, having gone from the Baptist community to no church for a while, to a Presbyterian church that at least recognized the arts, and then a Presbyterian pastor who got really excited about liturgy and started reintroducing that to our Presbyterian church, which made a lot of people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I had always been taught that liturgy, like three-piece suits, was just about conforming Mm-hmm. and just going through the motions so that nobody would disagree, mm-hmm. but experiencing that the liturgy was, in fact, a, a liberating thing, that I wasn't going to have to sit and listen to a bunch of people get up and pray performatively about their own personal struggles, but that I was going to have that reassuring sense of community that we were all praying together around mm-hmm. the world and throughout history, and that started working on me in a really amazing way so that now I go to church not to ex- not to perform for my community what I've done and where I am with my faith and what my prayer requests are this week but to have that to find that rest in the reminder that I am a part of something so much larger than myself so Anne and I have been attending a, an Episcopal church that does a, an Anglican Anglo-Catholic mass mm-hmm. um and for me, I mean, You're getting I, there. You're a few getting years there. ago, I would never have imagined we we you know that I'd even be interested in something like that. 
Um, but I feel a kind of rest when I walk into worship there that um, I never experienced in the sort of conference room-like aesthetic of the churches of my childhood. Um, and it does feel more fully human in, in a way. I think there is a, something to this idea that we can rest in liturgy because we maybe we often feel like we're performing. And the one thing that I really, and maybe it's just being an introvert, but one thing that I really reacted against in the style of worship that my dad brought our family into was this idea that I had to have emotive, emotional responses publicly. I mean, part of it was that I was 14. You don't really want anyone looking at you when you're 14. But that really stayed with me in that I... I don't know, when you're creating and you feel the pressure to create all the time as an artist, even if you want to do it, there's still the pressure. And to be able to just sink into something that exists and feel part of it and feel like it's not your responsibility to creatively (laughs) make your worship. But I know that's not certainly not true for everyone, but it seems like it's true for the three of us. For me, there are the two things. There's the liturgy, which has that sort of uh, bigger, almost erases the individual quality, uh, all the things you were talking about, Jessica. But then to me, there's also the call of the gospel, which is like, hey, jackass, get involved with other people. Radically so. Get into them in a way that you can't possibly maintain that boundary yeah yeah so Daniel Garcia was was really amazing last night in the way he was talking about some of these things but one of the things he said is like there's no debate about this part of the gospel it's like the suffering are more important they're more important not it's not you you, there's no you can't say well sort of that no in this this context boom and that you have to go and do and so community others like the face of the other is it's required that you do that work yeah. and that it mess you up and blast you open and make you uncomfortable. And then the liturgy sort of puts you back together yeah. a little bit. Uh-huh. And so it's this back and forth of, which is friendship too, by yeah, the way. Yeah, That's yeah. what a friendship is, isn't it? I mean, that kind yeah. of being busted open and then kind of put back together and busted open. film seminar this week we've been watching films about friendship that was the theme given to me and I was like oh boy this could either go really hallmark after school special or this could this could be about really really troubled people (laughs) trying to get along and so I sort of charted out this spectrum of okay down here at this end you have Cassavetti or uh, you know you have uh, Mikey and Nikki with, with Peter Falk which is such a troubling friendship that people may never have returned to the Glen if we'd watched that. And then there's the Muppet movie at the other end, which, you know, is just this <laughs> joyful celebration of friendship and the power of imagination. We've been watching these intimate stories of friends who, of, of people who become friends through experience with art in some cases. Mm-hmm. The movie Columbus is about a young woman who's inter- passionate about architecture, and she meets a young man whose father was an architecture scholar, and thus, of course, he hates architecture or thinks he does, but as they walk around and look at different buildings, they just open up and, in, in a way, fall in love. Yeah, um, but it's this very, I don't, I don't want to say pure, because it's not pure, it's very messy, but it's mm-hmm. like, a, they fall in love without it having to fall down the, the typical, 
like they don't have sex. Right, these right. sorts of things. Are... One thing that's been coming up this week is the idea of iron sharpening iron being not so much like, oh, help, let me help you become a better person, but like real contentiousness, the furnace of conflict and disagreement. And in this film, as they open up to each other more, they inevitably just clash in this scene very appropriately staged on a bridge mm -hmm. where they speak the hard truths to each other and have to walk away from each other for a while to recover, but they do. Uh, and then the next day, the next movie we watched was about the very thing we've been talking about. This married couple who are absolutely happy and who have this beautiful garden and this kind of ideal life together, but they are almost supernaturally committed to the suffering in their community to the point that you get a lot of the discomfort of watching the movie is the discomfort of thinking boundaries, people, boundaries. <laughs> Take care of yourself. You keep letting these you keep letting these tornadoes sweep into your house and nearly destroy your family. Another it's year by Mike Lee. I really recommend it for feeling like total complete crap for a little while. Excellent. <laughs> I'll keep that under advisement. It's it's harrowing. And there's no there's very little mention of any religious vocabulary in the film. I mean they go to a funeral. And they hear yeah, this. even that, the religious liturgy is totally insufficient. Dry to the, Yeah, it's not able to penetrate. But the love of this couple and the patience of this couple and the sacrifices of this couple for the suffering in their lives, it's not ideal. It's, they, they struggle, but it's, it's so inspiring. My friend Tara Owens, who is a spiritual director, recently talked with me and my wife Anne about Psalm 23 and what she's been learning about Psalm 23. And she said, do you realize that the opening line, the Lord is my shepherd, we've already lost a lot in translation because the Lord in that instance is a verb. And that was just one little thing she said before we got into this really amazing revealing study of the Psalm. But that, that one little note has had this incredible ripple effect in my understanding of the gospel and of God, that the Lord is active. Love is my shepherd. So wherever you see the love, that is, you know, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, that is where, that is where the gospel is happening. So another year for me is about as gospel as movies get. Though I have not to do a Siskel but it's by an thing here, but... There's also something so troubling because the movie is is confronting the fact that there's really no reason and therefore no formula for being happy. So it's it's mysterious and why happy people are happy. Yeah, Mike Lee, the director, says that a lot of it's just luck. Right, and there and therefore also unhappiness. And so unhappiness can't be cured. There's no there's no method really there. And in some ways, there's something to, I find one of the things that's so intense about that film is there's almost something cruel about the fact that these desperately unhappy people have to be in proximity to this really deeply happy couple mm -hmm. and have to recognize that they're never. I mean, the last scene of the movie, I, I don't want to no, ruin it, no for, but the last scene of the movie is really, again, where you see these, this group of happy people kind of close in on each other. And, and it shows how there, the other people who want this, who want this, are yeah. always going to be outside yeah. of that to some they, degree. They, so wow. there's a kind of unintentional cruelty that even happens. And yet, they obviously need each other. The happy people do need the unhappy people to sort of make 
Because happiness can become a, a kind of death if it's fully enclosed on itself. The unhappy people desperately need the happy people. In some sense, they have, they have to be together, and they're also punishing one another at the same time. And I don't think any of that yeah. gets resolved, yeah. fully resolved. No, not at all. And it makes me want to cry just it's, talking about it. It's, it's like a like torture so much. Yeah, there, there's nothing the unhappy people can do. Uh, but here they are at a table with people who are on this nostalgia trip of all the places in the world they've visited, of how... Well, at that you know, that check, at, 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 at that point, I was making so much money, I didn't know what to do with it, right. and so we were able to go here and here and here. And the camera drifts over to this miserable character who can't even imagine that kind yeah. of life. But she's at a table with a family that she's never had. So it's almost like the unhappiness affirms the rightness of the vision by virtue of showing what happens when you're deprived or when you deprive yourself of those kinds of. Things. And so that sort of brings up the question of what's the difference between happiness and joy? Because I feel like that's a low point for our heroes in that movie. Mm-hmm. Because all they're doing is reminiscing about these, the, the good old days. But joy isn't dependent on the immediate circumstances. Joy is a deeper sensation, contentment that will carry you through disruption and hard times because of a belief in something beyond that. And that's, I think, what's missing in the film. You don't see that. Yeah. I'm thinking of, um, I haven't seen the film, but what you're saying about one person's happiness is another person's trauma. Something we see a lot in community and especially in social media culture. I'm thinking hashtag blessed being applied to that couple who are so happy. And what does it mean when one person's blessing Seems like another person's lack. But I think it ha- almost has to be. Right. There's no way to get out of that. Exactly. And how are we grateful and thankful for and believing in all of our gifts coming from God, from a supernatural source, while at the same time some of us are receiving what seems like nothing? Even if you go to the most sacred of movies at the Glen Workshop, you find the same conflict. When I show Babette's Feast, Mm -hmm. there's always one person in the room who says, Babette is terribly selfish, and she gives these people who don't have the resources to enjoy anything and have resigned themselves to this sort of misery as, as, you know, devotion. This feast that introduces them to what is possible... But it is now no longer possible because all of the money has been spent and this great feast has been served. Mm-hmm. And now they're going to go forward no- knowing how poor they are. Right. It is It is terrible. Yeah, it's a great argument. That's, that's r- correct. But, but what she's also given them is that. Right. Is all of that trauma as well as the tools to deal with it as well as the recognition that that's going to collapse into trauma again like she's given them all of that i think and she's given them a picture of what we are promised is to come which helps you go forward if you understand it that way well and just the idea that this the feast is temporary no matter what your happiness is that you're claiming at this moment Mm-hmm. Keeping it in mind that it's temporary for all of us. Tomorrow we're going to watch a movie about a guy who is a counselor to men who are coming out of prison on parole. And how his very first connection with one of those men becomes a mutual rehabilitation relationship. I did want to, I did want to conclude it with the Muppet movie because yes. um, it's just such a celebration. And it, it really isn't... It's so easy to, to think that that's just a nostalgia trip or it's just sentimental, mm-hmm. or just to make millions of people happy. But it's, it was done two years ago as the closing movie at the Glen by 
Gareth Higgins and Scott Teams, and I am holding a grudge. But um, <laughs> So I've decided instead to show a documentary by Agnes Varda, her and this other visual artist named JR, as they travel around France, awesome. seeking out people who have been underappreciated, overlooked, neglected, and then blowing up these glorious 40-foot-tall portraits of them in France so that you can't miss them when you drive by. And it's just such an inspiring reminder that creativity can become so much more when it does that elemental gospel thing of find the suffering, find those who feel invisible and make them visible. Agnes Varda just died. Yeah. Is it this year or? Um, it was, it's been about a year now. Maybe a year. It seems like a long It's not that long. And what I'm saying should be said is that she herself I think is getting more and more recognized as being the true genius of the French New Wave. Yeah, I mean, yeah. she's yeah. the real one. Yeah. She she is beloved above all. I think in France now, the last Cannes Film Festival, the poster was a picture of her, and she's just herself. And that's where the that's where the movie we're going to watch. Actually, yeah. now that I'm thinking about it, it does end with grief. The Gleaners and I was uh, one of the most beautiful essays. Yeah. And grief. That's my favorite of her films. Yeah, that, that is a brilliant. I also think that that is one of the great, yeah, film essays. Mm-hmm. I use that in my academic writing class, the the research writing class, because yeah. it is a research essay. Yes. But the way she researches is so playful and spontaneous. It's, exactly. It's, it's, so there's it's improv. that balance and uh, war between joy and pain and grief and suffering and rare moments of the feast. That we love. The end. <laughs> 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 Nailed that. <back. Yeah. laughs> All right. Thank you. And thanks for doing Kermit. You've been listening to the Image Podcast, produced by Cassidy Hall. Our music is by Sister Sinjin. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews are the best way to make sure other people find out about us. For more information on how you can support Image and to subscribe to the print journal, please visit the Image website at www.imagejournal.org. There you'll also find all previous episodes of this podcast and our show notes and links to resources discussed in the interviews. You can also access back issues of the journal through the Image archive. We'll be back in two weeks with further exploration of art, faith, and mystery.